For the month of December, we're dusting off some of our most popular episodes from this past year. Today's episode of Heart of the Home originally aired on February 17th of this year and takes me back to my journalism days and a story that will forever haunt me, the story of Susan Powell and my former colleague, Dave Colley, who brought her story back to life. This is a bonus edition of Heart of the Home podcast, and we're stepping outside of our traditional topics of all things home and diving into my past life as a journalist. I covered a lot of very high-profile stories as a reporter and anchor uh, here in the Salt Lake City market. One of those stories that I covered the very most was the case of missing West Valley City mother, Susan Powell. When the story first happened, There was a lot of the unknown. Nobody really knew what was going on. And years went by and it kept getting more twisted and more dark and more disturbing and more heartbreaking. Well, after the case was declared cold and I had been long gone from the station that I covered that story at, KSL, a radio journalist by the name of Dave Colley picked the story up and dived into the deep rabbit hole of the lives of Susan Powell, Josh Powell, Steve Powell, and all of the other players involved. He's created a podcast that has gone worldwide viral. It's called Cold. If you aren't listening to it, you're definitely in the minority. And I've shared some of my thoughts about it and relived some of the experiences I had covering the story of Susan Powell on my Instagram feed. Well... Today, I'm sharing an interview I did with the creator of Cold, Dave Colley. And between the two of us, we're the two people that worked at KSL that know the very most about this case. I'm interested to hear your thoughts about his thoughts and mine together on the case of Susan Powell. Dave Colley. Hey, how you doing? (laughs) Thanks for coming in. Yeah, you bet. This is a bit outside of our normal topic zone. It's a lot outside of our Mm. normal topic zone. But because I had been getting so much, I don't know if pressure is the right word, to talk about my experiences, I felt like, you know, everybody was saying, well, what about this? And what about this? And there's a lot that I don't know the answer to because those documents were not available when I was working on the Susan Powell case. And now you have become the man. It's really strange. Um, I mean, you and I both, obviously, with our professional experience working as reporters, we're, we're trained and taught to stand outside the story and report it. We don't inject ourselves into the story. And this podcast has kind of taken on a life of its own. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I've spent a lot of time digging through, you know, the documents, going back and doing new interviews with some of the people who, you know, you you spoke to doing your reporting. And as part of that, um, I've, I've kind of ended up in the middle of it where people are coming to me asking for information and I have you know, developed some relationships with people who are directly involved and, and can maybe be a conduit for getting that information through. So it's, it, it, is a little, it is a little different. It is a little awkward. Uh, some of that social media stuff where people are hitting you up, you know, wanting specifics about this, it's different than we did the job 10 years ago. And, uh, you know, credit to you. I've been watching, you know, what you've been doing on Instagram, talking to people and sharing your experiences. And that's, I mean, it's fantastic. It helps people, I think, understand what the job of journalism is all about. Yeah. Well, I think 
what I've sensed more is that this this story has been so frustrating and it's so infuriating and it's so heartbreaking. It's so many of these emotions that I think people who have listened to your podcast and followed this story for so long don't know what to do with those emotions. Mm. So they're looking for somebody almost just to like vent to, right? right. Like, I'm going to tell you all these things that are really frustrating. And for me, I'm saying, I know, like, I think we all feel that they were really, really frustrating and it's, I feel like it's more that. It's like a collective anger and frustration and sadness over this story, more than asking really specific questions. I, I get both. Um, and I'm sure your, your experience is going to be a little bit different than mine. Uh, what I struggle with a little bit is people who take that emotion and then aren't being the most civil about it, right? Uh, because... Certainly, I have my own point of view of where I think the system broke down, where where there were maybe lapses or missed opportunities that could have hopefully prevented the deaths of of you know so many people in this in this situation. I mean, you have you have two young boys, you've got Josh himself, you've got his brother Michael, and you've got presumably Susan, who none of these people none of these people should be dead. Um, but what what I don't want to see is you know, folks who are stepping out and expressing that frustration and that anger in a way that is, you know, inciting violence mm -hmm. against, you know, not uh, productive, right? Or, yeah. or, or who are, you know, people who just want to to drop, you know, four letter words and and against, but that's not what I'm here to do. So mm -hmm. I, I I try to walk that line on social media of saying I I feel you, right? I share that emotion. Let's focus on how we can talk about. Uh, things that are productive. Let's talk about domestic abuse. Let's talk about you know the criminal justice system. Changes in the system what that maybe need be to be made yeah. to to protect children or have a better communication system with with dispatchers. I'm with you. Um, I I also you know a lot of people are like, well why why won't you say for sure that West Valley City Police messed up or what you know. I think that is not my call. I mm. think they will be the first to admit that that things were not handled exactly as they wish they were handled. They, but what I've tried to say is that I've interviewed a lot of police departments. I've talked to a lot of investigators. And I feel like in the moment, everybody's just doing the best that they can, yeah. right, with, with the knowledge that they have. And yeah, mistakes are made, but everybody wanted a different outcome right nobody was like you know what i'm just gonna drop the ball on this i just right. you know i'm just gonna let this one go it's like no everybody was was trying to do the best that they could and navigate things as well as they could do you feel that way as well i do and through the work that i've done and going back and reviewing the case file and interviewing you know especially you know detective ellis maxwell who was the lead investigator on the susan powell case he's now retired and that allows him a little more freedom to talk about his experience. And, um, you know, he plays a big part in the podcast. And uh, I asked him at one point, and this will be included uh, as we come toward the end of the podcast, but I asked him, did you botch this case? Because that's a word that a lot of people will use in reference to West Valley. And, you know, he kind of leaned back in his chair and, and you know, rolled his eyes to the ceiling and, and thought for a minute and, and came back and said, you know, I don't, I don't think so. Um, they did a lot of work. And part of what's come out, I think, in the podcast is we didn't see everything that was going on mm -hmm. in the public. And 
we can certainly argue as to whether or not the decisions they made in the moment were the right ones, but they were doing things. And uh, it's not like, I think a lot of us perceived they were just sitting back going, well, what can we do? Oh, I don't well. know. He's, he's in the wind. That's, I don't know what he's doing. What, yeah, that's not what was happening. I'm I'm so interested to ask you, what made you want to take this on? Because we were just talking about the timing of when you started at KSL. So you started at KSL about a year before I left. Mm -hmm. So this story had already been going for several years. Um, and I'm just so interested to hear why you had this personal drive to take on such a huge project. Uh, so let's go back to kind of where I started. I was working at another radio station before I came to KSL here in Salt Lake and uh, had covered uh, parts of this story, but we were a really small operation. So I wasn't able to do a lot of the field work where I was actually going out, you know, going out to Ely and, and some of these places. Uh, like like your experience. Um, but I was doing a lot of phone interviews. I was talking a lot to the police department. I come to KSL in March of 2012. So about a month after Josh killed himself and his boys up in Washington state. And the investigation at that time was still going on. Uh, this case wasn't declared cold until about a year later. And so I was involved in covering it on the KSL news radio side uh, for, for about a year as that kind of wound up. And then what really happened was when the West Valley City Police Department declared this case cold, they uh, released their case file and it was uh, thousands and thousands of pages of documents. And collectively, I think journalists, especially here in Salt Lake, we rushed into that, into that paperwork to try to find anything new. And, and there's a lot of stuff. And one of the things that I noticed at the time was references to uh, video recordings of Josh Powell's interviews with Detective Maxwell uh, the day after he came back from this you know, camping trip where his wife disappeared. And those were not included in the documents that the police had given us. And so I went back to West Valley and I said, I think that would be really interesting to see you know, his body language and, and some of that. So can we get those uh, videos? Uh, West Valley provided those videos. We we did a story about what was in there, and I walked away from that frustrated because I had way more questions after seeing it, and I was taking almost four hours of video and condensing it into you know a two-minute mm -hmm. package, and and I I couldn't think of a good way to communicate everything that I had seen in that in a traditional kind of TV or radio way, and uh, it, it took about another year before the idea kind of dawned on me. And this is about the time that like serial and things were really starting to come up. And, and the idea of, you know, we could do a really long form kind of dissection of this case because mm -hmm. we've got this amazing case file full of all of this information. I'm seeing all these references to audio and video that we've never seen or heard. And if we can get West Valley to play ball or if we can find another way to get a hold of some of that material, uh, I, you know, I think there's a really compelling story to tell. So that was kind of the, that was kind of the origin of, of cold. What were you, what was your boss's reaction when you were like, hey, this is what I want to do? Because, you know, I, I really think KSL is the only station in town that that could do what you've done, that, mm -hmm. that would put the resources and the time behind what you've done um, and back a project like this or have faith in a project like this because they have more resources, they've got a bigger staff, um, they also have their management also has a philosophy of of you know in depth 
reporting, mm-hmm. which I think is really valuable. But I still think that was probably a pretty interesting conversation. Yeah. And it played out over, you know, a couple of years, to be perfectly honest. Um, I pitched this originally. Again, I think it was, if I'm remembering cor- correctly, it was probably around 2014, where I pitched the original idea between 2014, 2015. And the response that I received at the time from my news director was, that's a great idea. I love it. You've got a day job. Yeah. Right. So I, my job at KSL uh, prior to working on cold was uh, I produced the afternoon news on the radio. So three to seven o'clock, uh, I, I was the guy who was uh, choosing what stories get played. I was uh, sending reporters here or there. I was writing a lot of script. I was actually doing a story myself every day. It's a busy job. Mm-hmm. Journalists have really busy jobs. And the idea of uh, then doing something like cold on top of that was not going to work. So, you know, I, I've got this idea, I want to do it, but I can't do it for free. And I told my boss that, and she said, well, you know, we'll see if maybe we can get you a day a month or something like that to work on it. It's, I mean, it's like snail's pace. It's, oh, I know. It's never going to happen. Know. But we did that uh, for a little while, and we started making some progress in terms of getting some of the recordings that I mentioned, you know, um, we, we had a couple sit-down meetings with West Valley and talked about things, started reaching out, doing some interviews. And as we started to get some very compelling pieces for the story, we were able to go up the chain of command and I think kind of paint that picture about this is where this could go. Did you tell them, look, there are some really successful journalism podcasts out there that have examined cases like Serial, like Dr. Death, you know, that have really done a really good job of, of getting out there. At the, at the time we were starting this, uh, some of those hadn't even launched yet. So, I mean, Serial was out there and that was kind of the, right? Everybody's like, in fact, one of my first conversations with, uh, you know, the, the press information officer at West Valley when I was trying to convey what I wanted to do, she goes, oh, you want to do Serial for Susan Powell? I was like, yeah. Yes and no. <laughs> I mean, I don't, I don't want to do a Serial clone, but I want to, I want to really dive into this case. And it was, uh, it was a, I think it was a bit of a sell, right? To, to get people who are trained in traditional media to understand how this is going to be different. Mm-hmm. But part of the pitch, and I think part of why KSL embraced it was, uh, our goal was to have the podcast be the primary thing, but then to also do supporting stories on KSL TV, KSL Radio, KSL.com, and the Deseret News. And to to use those existing platforms to really get the story in front of a lot of people and and bring them into the podcast. So uh, huge credit to, you know, my boss, Cheryl Worsley, and her boss, Tanya Vea, and, and on and on, right? Um, for at the end of uh, 2017, saying, you know what? In order to make this work, we need to we need to take you off of the producer desk and put you on this podcast full time, mm-hmm. uh, because without that, it, it never would have happened. Once you started going into it, I I certainly know what it's like to read really graphic police reports mm-hmm. and watch interviews and listen to tapes and and it's it's really really hard. And I think the public doesn't always understand the the graphic details that are in there the the things that that you have to kind of take that are scientific language or or police speak and then decipher it and pick out what is the most information it takes a lot of mental energy to do that and it also there are things that you read that 
that you don't ever unread, yeah. you know? Yeah. And you had to do that again and again and again. What was that process like? It's uh, it's ongoing. I mean, I'm still digging into material, still going after, you know, files and things to this day. But I think to your point, um, you know, we've we've both read really graphic things. And sometimes as a journalist, you see it firsthand. Sometimes you see it secondhand because you're reading reports or something like that. In In diving into photos and videos and things like that, especially having to do with uh, Steve Powell. So uh, Susan Powell, who's missing, her father-in-law, Steve Powell, has a, uh, you know, an obsession with her. Mm -hmm. And he's, uh, he's, you know, shooting uh, voyeur video of her. He's uh, doing photo manipulations and things like that, that are, that are graphic. He's writing very graphic things. And uh, I have to review all of that. You have to get inside this guy's mind, and it's a pretty screwed up place. <laughs> yeah, and, and Steve and Josh both have, you know, uh, have expressed uh, some very, some very troubling, just ways of thinking and 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 actions. And um, I take I take very seriously the responsibility that I think most journalists do that we we gatekeep some of that. Mm -hmm. I have to make a decision about. You know, is there value in putting this out publicly? Is there a way that I can describe what it is without re-victimizing Susan? Yeah, right? Or the boys. Or the boys, yeah. Right. So so it's it's um it's taken a toll. I mean, I definitely have uh have lost sleep over some of this stuff. And I, I think that's um a fairly universal experience for even law enforcement who were forced to go through Absolutely. a lot of this. Absolutely. Yeah. yeah. I remember Many years ago, there was in the city of Layton, there were five child homicides in a, in a matter of months in the same city with a small, very, the same very small detective group. And uh, I had covered every single one of those stories as a reporter. And I couldn't imagine being one of the detectives that covered each one of those stories and having to look at these sweet children. And, and so I remember I ended up making that a story and, and mm. pitching it as a story, interviewing these detectives. But it it's a whole other, I mean, it's it's certainly traumatic for journalists, but it's a whole other level to be one of the first responders or be one of the detectives that has to try and find a resolution for this. I mean, it's just like, yeah, I, I have a hard time sort of compartmentalizing stories. Yeah. And, and I imagine that they, I remember one of them telling me that one of the little boys that they had covered in one of these homicide cases, had a, was wearing a shirt when they found him that his little boy had, and so he saw this this victim in this shirt and was like, "Oh my gosh, that's the same shirt my son has." Wow! And it was it was hard to separate that. Do you find yourself because you have been so immersed in this case? Do you find it hard to leave it? Like when you come home, it doesn't stop, right? I mean, you were doing a lot of this on your own time anyway. Yeah, I I started so I mean like Steve Powell's journals when I started this project. Uh, I would come home from doing my day job. I would have a little, you know, something to eat for dinner. And then I would drop down on the couch with my iPad and, and read for two or three hours and take notes and annotate. And then you go to bed and you wake up in the morning, you go back to work. And it's like, uh, but because it was on my own time, I could also sometimes say, you know what, I, I got to put this away and, and, you know, do something different for a day. Uh, since I started producing cold back in November, uh, so, you know, this is, this is February. I've been I've been at this for several months now. Um, I've been working seven day weeks, and uh, I literally have not had a day off that's included uh, working, you know, Christmas and Thanksgiving and everything. Mm -hmm. 
because there's so much work to do. And uh, I go home at night and like last night, I, again, you know, pull up a PDF and start start reading things, just trying to make sure that there's nothing I've missed, that there's, you know, not information. Uh, so it's, it, it has kind of taken over um, my life and I'm really looking forward to the time where I can kind of say, you know what, uh, I'm, I'm done. I'm done yeah. with the Powells. Um, not done with Susan. I mean, hopefully, right, the, the goal is there in the back of our minds that we're, we're hopefully doing some good for Susan's friends and family, and and that will continue after the production of the podcast is done. I, I would like to remain engaged with some of those those people and, and continue sharing, hopefully, information and answers. Uh, hopefully, sharing the message that you know this this is a story that that can have positive impact, that we can do good in our community by sharing uh, some of what we've learned by studying this case. But being able to say, I don't ever have to look at those pictures or read that stuff again. Uh, will be a will be a very a hap- good day a happy day you know at, at that point um when i first heard that ksl was doing this project i've got to tell you i was super resistant about the whole thing i heard about it and i was like i'm not listening to that yeah and why is ksl drudging this up again everyone involved all the major players are dead it'll take i i truly believe it'll take a stroke of an act of God and some miraculous thing in order to find her body at this point. And whatever sort, you know, whatever you want to believe, I think it's going to take some, something really amazing in order to find her. So at first I was like, why, why, why? Because it was so hard to cover. um, And it was so hard to get to know all of the people involved and go, you know, to the, to her town where she grew up and spend so many days outside her house and, and look at her sweet little boys and know what had happened to them. And, and so I was like, really, why are we doing this? And then I, I really didn't listen to it until over and over people started, my phone started blowing up. Jen, you're in this pod. Did you know you're in this podcast? You're in it a lot. A lot of your stories are in this Mm -hmm. podcast. And I was like, okay, well, if I'm going to, respond to people. I need to actually know what the podcast says. So then I started listening to it and I realized this is, I'll just say this for you because I'm sure you won't say this. This is a career maker for you. This is exceptional journalism. It's really, really, really good work. Thank you. Uh, you know, I, I had a sense while I was working on it that I was doing something important. Mm -hmm. I had no idea if anyone would listen to it. Um, I, you know, really, because this case I'm, went viral. I mean, it, not viral in this and viral wasn't really as big of a thing back then. But this case, you know, I've, I've debated this a lot with a lot of different people. Why was this case? Why did it have such a broad appeal? Right. You know, and, and I've, I don't know, was it that I think it was a slow news cycle? Would you agree with that when it happened? I mean, it's the, it's the beginning of December, right? Uh-huh. It's a little quiet. And, and so, I mean, there are some criticisms, almost verging on tropes. You know, it's a, it's a white woman, right? Would we care as much? We hear this a lot a in journalism. A white woman. Right? Yep. Would you care so much about, and that's a whole other side topic that, you know, I, I could happily debate with somebody because I, I think, yes, the answer mm-hmm. is we would care regardless of race or, mm-hmm. you know, social status, whatever. But that being said, I mean, there were a few factors. Um, the, the relationship between Josh and Susan in a lot of ways was, was atypical, but in the other sense, it was fairly universal. Uh, this theme that really, I think, comes up uh, very early in the podcast is that here's this couple where they get married thinking that 
they're both on the same kind of course. And a few years in, Josh changes course. And this tension between Susan wanting to stay in her religion and Josh not wanting to be there, I think is something that a lot of couples can identify with. For sure. And it's not to say that because somebody, you know, chooses not to practice a religion anymore that they're going to become a, you know, a killer. It's not what we're saying. What we're saying is look at the way he treated his wife uh, because the behaviors there were not good. Mm-hmm. And people recognized they were not good, but felt powerless to help Susan get out of that situation. I think that's part of it. Um, but but going back to what I was saying about, you know, not knowing if people are going to listen to it, I'm passionate about the story. I know people here locally are passionate about the story. Why this one above others? I, I mean, certainly the... The weirdness involving Steve Powell plays into that. The weird factor. I really think that is what pushed it over the edge. Yeah. It's not just a case about a, a husband who kills his wife, or presumably. Right, right. I mean, yep. there are a lot of people that are like, "How we still don't know that Josh killed her. And, and you're right. We, we for sure don't know definitely. But yes. um, it's more than just that kind of case, right? Because... The weird factor with Steve. Can we just talk about the music for one <laughs> second? Like, I I think that was the episode where people started dry heaving. Yeah. I really do. Yeah. Well, and it was uh, it was kind of a fine line to walk for me because those songs, I mean, you do have a visceral reaction oh. to hearing scene. And when you hear Susan's voice in those recordings. What? Yeah. I know. Everyone is like, what is happening? How in the world? Um, and... I didn't want to, you know, I didn't want to do an episode that was, here's every song that Steve ever did. I was going to kind of weave them in over the course of a couple episodes. And uh, believe me, I heard the social media reaction, people going, no more Steve, mm-hmm. no more Steve. <laughs> and I'm going, you actually do have one or two more coming up. Please stay with me. Like, I'm not doing this to aggravate you. Um, but it reached a point where, yeah, there there are songs of Steve's that are not in the podcast that I could have put in, but people said enough is enough, and they were right. And so I was like, you know what? Let's move on. We don't we don't need to be we don't need to be doing that anymore. Yeah, weird. I'm going to ask you about something that I have received dozens of questions about, and it's whether or not I believe that like why the whole massaging situation where yeah. you know, and I've been asked about that a lot. And of course, I mean, we're not there. We don't know exactly what was going on. I want to ask what you think first before I tell you what I think. Okay. Um, Do you think she was seducing Steve? No, not at all. So let me set the stage a little bit. This is like February-ish of uh, like January, February of 2003. Josh and Susan have been married for just under two years. Uh, Susan married Josh at 19, Mm -hmm. right? So she's young. And, um, you know, she's personality wise, she, she is a bit of a flirt, uh, and that's not a judgment on my part. That's just the way that she interacted with people, men and women. Like she was very open, uh, and would speak her mind and she didn't have a good understanding of how other people often received that. Mm -hmm. So, uh, Josh and Susan bounce around a little bit. They end up staying in Steve Powell's house uh, for a period in 2002 where he really develops this obsession with her. She doesn't know Steve and everything that's going on in his mind. I mean, that's a, he's a, he is preconditioned when she comes into the house to 
regardless of what she does um, to fixate on her because of the way he works. And uh, she's a cosmetologist and she takes pride in the fact that she uh, looks good. Learned a new skill. Yeah. Yep. And, and so it's like uh, she's getting ready for work one time and she's just waxed her legs. And I mean, this is on video, right? Like I have video recording of her going into to Stephen going, look, I just waxed my legs. Like how smooth they are. And that's all that was. It was just, it was just, look at what a good job I did. And uh, it's like, you know, below the knee, like it's like it's her shin. This is not a, this is not a, what I think most of us would consider to be in any way a provocative thing. Yeah. Steve perceives it as being provocative. Uh, both he and Josh, uh, through their writings, indicate that they viewed that as a come on. And uh, Steve at that point starts in his own mind, perceiving everything that Susan does as being an action meant to titillate. This is so, can I just say, titillate is right up there with moist in my <laughs> words of most disgusting words ever. My apologies. <laughs> um but but I mean, there's there's no other real good way to describe the way I he know. views it, and so, um, yeah, I don't I don't think I don't think that Susan ever had a thing for Steve, uh, and I think when, so, and I'll tell you, you know, going through those police files and finding reference to police having the recording that Steve made of the day that he told Susan he loved her, right, um. As a journalist, as a storyteller, I thought that's going to be the most important piece of audio I can I can get in this whole story because you will be able to hear. First of all, I, I want to hear how Susan reacts to that because that will inform my understanding of, of this dynamic between Susan and Steve. Uh, it took us a long time to get that recording. Once we did, and I was able to listen to this long pause where you know Steve's in his minivan, he tells Susan, who's the only other person in the minivan that he's in love with her, and she doesn't say anything for a long time. And when she does speak again, it's to change the, the topic. She's super uncomfortable. Uh, yeah. Right? And, and it's like she's trapped in this situation with a guy who's more than twice her age. She wants out. She her father-in-law, yeah. Um, and that told me everything. That, that, that told me everything I needed to know. Uh, and I, and I hope that comes through in the podcast that, you know, yeah, Susan was not into Steve. I also think, you know, think of a 19 year old girl, especially in the, you know, the LDS culture or, mm -hmm. or Mormon culture, whatever you want to call it now is, is pretty sheltered. Mm -hmm. Right. So she was very naive. Um, and everything I know about her supports that she just didn't have a lot of real world experience. And that's what I was trying to explain to people. You know, she of course didn't see her actions that way because she didn't have that context of world experience to realize that her actions were having those kind of ramifications. Yeah. Similar feelings. Yeah, absolutely. And this, and this continues on. I mean, she definitely grows up, uh, especially after the move to Utah, she has her boys, you know, um, but, but you see some of her communications with her male coworkers, uh, this is going to come up in a future episode where, you know, again, she'll, she'll have a dream about a male coworker and she'll tell him in an email, Hey, you were in my dream. And she might even, uh, she might even, you know, joke with him a little bit. Oh, it was a little PG 13, right. Uh, where you're like, Oh, Susan, no, 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 no. Like, I'm not judging you for that happening. You probably ought not tell the guy this because mm -hmm. he's going to see that differently, Perceive than, it differently than you think it's coming across. 
Are you comfortable talking in hypotheticals? I know as journalists, that's really hard to do. To a degree. I mean, I, I'll be careful, but yeah. A lot of people have asked me what I thought happened mm -hmm. the night of the camping trip. What do you think happened? It's a, it's a, it's a bit of a work in progress. Uh, it's changed since I started. Mm -hmm. uh, and it, it, I mean, it's evolved even just within the last few days based on you know, information that I'm still going through. Uh, my read of all available evidence suggests that, uh, shock to everybody, right? That Josh killed Susan. Uh, how he did it and why he did it, I think uh, the why I feel a lot more confident in saying now, I mean, it looks to me like setting up life insurance, setting up um, a trust, uh, securing power of attorney over Susan, uh, all things that happened months and months before, before mm -hmm. were premeditation. Absolutely. That's, yeah, yeah. So Josh goes on his uh, camping trip. I think that was, uh, I think that was his alibi. Mm -hmm. uh, he clearly had no problem telling the police that he went to the Pony Express. He wasn't specific, but was, uh, you know, willing to give them information about seeing sheep and uh, stuff like this. So he wasn't trying to hide the fact that he was out there, which leads me to believe I don't think... Susan is out No, there. I don't either. Um, when he comes back in his early interactions with the police, uh, he's insistent that Susan would have gone to work. And this continues Monday night into Tuesday, um, where you know, even going back to when he first returns from the Pony Express trail, even though he knows police are at the house and that Susan didn't, didn't go to work, he calls and leaves her a voicemail on her phone, which he actually has with him as if he were coming to pick her up from work. He goes and parks outside her work uh, for a while and leaves her another voicemail. Hey, I'm waiting to pick you up. So whatever the, the scheme or the plan was or appeared to be, uh, it revolved around the idea that Susan had gone to work on that day, which leads me to believe that uh, I think he wanted her body to be found and for it to be seen as either an accident an on accident. her way to work or that it was a you know stranger abduction uh, because in order for him to collect on the life insurance, he would need Susan to be found and, found and be dead. That's interesting because I hadn't really considered that before. I knew that, you know, he wanted her to do bizarre things like ride her bike on a busy mm -hmm. road. I mean, I understood that stuff, but I, oh, wait, I don't know. I've kind of always thought that, you know, I mean, this is my own hypothetical, mm -hmm. right? Yeah. I have no facts to back this up other than what I know about the case. But I've kind of always thought he poisoned her. I didn't. Okay. So mine's changed a little bit okay. too, because initially I did not think he was capable of a gruesome murder. Mm. I thought he was a super creep who was really non-confrontational. I definitely believed that he was capable of murder, but I didn't think he had it. You know, he had like the sick, twisted. I I wasn't sure. You know, I didn't know all of his background. So mm -hmm. um, I thought he probably poisoned her until she was incapacitated, lost bodily functions mm -hmm. on the couch. I believed it was probably vomit or urine or mm -hmm. something like that. I thought he probably wrapped her up in the tree wrap, met Michael halfway. They either disposed of her body together or he handed her body over to Michael and Michael disposed of her body. Mm -hmm. I don't know. I mean, you know more about the details now than I did. Uh, but it, I mean, we're looking at it from the outside and just kind of seeing the shape of it without all the fine detail, mm -hmm. right? Um, and and I, I'm, I started or have been at various times very close to what you just described. 
I think the idea of sedation is is still very likely. Even if that wasn't the way he killed her, I, I think it's possible that he used that in order to physically incapacitate her so that she wouldn't resist as he was doing something Bury else. Bury her alive, right. dump her in a mine shaft. I mean, leave her to die somewhere. Right. That's what I initially thought um, until the boys. Right. Until the boys. Right. You know, let's talk about the boys for a minute because there was some confusion. I, I got a lot of questions after your episode, most recent episode mm-hmm. came out about how you described what happened to the boys. Why did you go about it that way? Why did you describe it that way? You're talking about uh, kind of the forensics of what happened in the house? The bludgeoning. Yeah. You described it as a bludgeoning. Uh, so, I mean, the, the, the way the coroner um, looked at at what was there is obviously going to be graphic. And I don't want to be super specific uh, because what I was trying to impart was um, maybe the, maybe the mode or the reason why he did that without, you know, I, I don't. And again, here I'm even being hesitant to, to describe it in full detail. Uh, I, it's, you can't, I mean, how can you say what it, I can't say it aloud. Right. It's horrific. It is. And, and as a journalist, I mean, I'm, I'm reporting the facts and in, in the strictest sense, yes, I would be telling you A, B, C, D. Mm-hmm. These are the facts as we know them. On the other hand, um, I have to balance, does it really matter? Because we know that the cause of death was actually the fire and smoke inhalation. And if I can, if I can impart the idea that, that Josh did something incredibly violent and brutal before that, with the apparent intention of immobilizing. Uh, the reason I described it that way is because it might inform how we view what happened to Susan, right? Because as we're just talking about immobilizing Susan, whether it be through you know, drugs or whatever, uh, that looks very similar to what happened to Charlie and Braden. Um, so I don't have a perfect answer. There's, you know, there's no great way to tell that story. Didn't that just completely change your thinking about Josh though, when you read that, read those details and you had to listen to what, you know, the, the social worker heard and saw it, it completely changed everything for me. It really did. And I, I don't know. I mean, I still have nightmares about it for sure. And I, um, I am so grateful that I wasn't the reporter that got sent to Washington. I bet. I'm so grateful. I really count my blessings. At the in the in the heat of the moment, it was really hard for me because um, I was so invested in the story and I had gotten to know everybody and I had literally just gotten back from Washington, mm-hmm. and so it was. I was like, oh, I had like this moment of like, should I just go? You know, I'm not that far past my point in my pregnancy when I can go. Can I, should I just go? And I just had like this you know, angel on my shoulder going, nope, this, you need to not go. And I am so glad I didn't go. Oh my gosh. I, that would just haunt me forevermore, forevermore. If, you know, if you've listened to that episode, um, you hear Gary Sanders, the detective up in Pierce County, who had the responsibility of actually going into the house and, and identifying the bodies, right? So the, the fire department and fighting the fire located uh, the bodies. You heard some of those radio calls, right? Signal one, signal two, signal three. Um, but but Gary's got to do the job of going in and making sure, is this Josh? Is this Charlie? Is this Braden? And then he has to go communicate that to the family. And, uh, you know, I think a lot of people who are in law enforcement, a lot of people who are in, you know, our line of work, journalism, um, 
they do talk about that compartmentalization where it's the job and you develop strategies to to kind of build a wall around those those things and, and put them away so that they don't drag you down. Um, and so he doesn't, you know, Gary doesn't get emotional with me in talking about it. But looking the man in the eyes as I'm interviewing him, can you see that? Yeah, yeah, you can see that. Um, and I'm, I'm with you. Uh, I'm glad I wasn't there. Um, sitting with Jennifer Graves and, and talking to her about her experience that day and, uh, you know, letting her talk without me saying a word for, I mean, it's, it's like, it's like seven minutes of tape with her just telling that story. I did not, I did not do a bunch of editing to take my comments. Or, I mean, that is her reliving it. And I'm sitting in her living room, listening to her tell that story. Um, that was hard going through it yourself in the moment up there. Jennifer, I, I, I don't blame you one bit. Yeah. And and maybe that's why I'm not in news anymore, mm. because I've never been good at compartmentalizing. Like I get way too emotionally invested in stories. Well, and but but let me, I mean, sorry to interject. Um, every reporter is different mm -hmm. and we have different strengths. We have different totally. weaknesses. Uh, the empathy that you can bring to a situation when you don't compartmentalize is valuable mm -hmm. and it will help you connect with people. If yes. all I'm doing is showing up going, I have no emotional investment in this case whatsoever, right. tell me the facts, you're not going to really get the story. I think that's why I was able to make such strong, build such strong connections with the people involved in the story is because I think they could sense that I I wasn't holding back my my investment or my emotions. What do you think about now when you think about Susan's parents. Um, I had a lot of people say, you know, Chuck seems almost nonchalant in discussing this stuff. And I had to explain to people, this guy has talked about it. A lot. A lot. Yeah. Hundreds of times. You don't think he's numb from saying the same things over and over and over again? So let me, let me, I'll share this with you. And I've not told this story uh, publicly. Um, in the very first uh, prelude for Cold, you hear me describe meeting Chuck at the, the Woodbine Cemetery up in Puyallup. And uh, I had talked to him on the phone a number of times, uh, interviewed him over the phone. But again, being a producer at KSL, I was never the one who was being sent out to cover the stories. Mm -hmm. So if breaking news happens, I'm on the phone talking to people, uh, but they're not sending me up to Washington to interview him. He doesn't know me, right? I, and I reach out and I tell him, hey, I'm doing this uh, podcast and... Um, even though podcasting is kind of turning into a, a thing right now, there are a lot of people who have no concept of what that means. you got a lot of podcasts that, quite frankly, uh, are a bunch of people sitting around without any journalism behind it. They're just talking about what they've read in stories, right? Yes. Um, that's not what I'm doing, but how do I convey that to him? Mm -hmm. So I say, I want to come up and I want to meet with you. Uh, he tells me, look, I, I don't want to do anything on on tape without the uh, consent of my attorney. Mm -hmm. I said, that's fine. Let me just meet you and describe what I'm doing and let's just talk. So I spent a day with him and this is uh, this is like October of, of 2017. And we go to the cemetery, he drives me around town, go sit down and have lunch with he and, uh, and Judy at their house. And um, at the end of that day, I'm thinking, I've, I've developed a bit of a rapport, hopefully, right? You've started to, to maybe um, build something. And so we stay in touch and it's, it's not until about a year later that I'm able to get back up there and interview him again on, on tape this time. 
And, uh, and we sit down and we do a very long interview in, in the room that uh, they built on the house that would have been, you know, Charlie and Braden's bedroom. And um, at the end of that, uh, I, I'm talking about having met him, you know, a year before. And he's like, oh, I don't really, you know, he's not connected these things together because you're right. He's talked to so many people over time. Yes. Am I, am I the person who was, you know, from the, the cable show that was up here, uh, you know, one of several, am I like, who, who cares? He doesn't know me from he anybody. He doesn't know. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I don't hold that against him. I'm not, I'm not trying to say that, but, but when he tells this story and I ask him about something that, you know, he might laugh at or something, you got to remember he's had years of processing this. And some of the, you know, some of that real raw emotion of the moment has, has settled. And yes, he gets emotional, but he's not going to be, he's not going to be crying through four hours of me asking Mm -hmm. him, you know, details about this, that, and the other. And I think it's very natural. Yeah. Cause I can tell you as, as somebody who met him right away when it happened, he was really emotional and very shell shocked. Oh yeah. Like just didn't, you could tell that he was a very, quiet, reserved, private, um, just a sweet guy and had suddenly been thrust into this situation that he had no tools to know how to deal with. So um, yeah, I think your experience with him and mine are are very different, but I Mm -hmm. totally get where he's at right now. By the time you've interviewed him, I mean, it's been (laughs) years and hundreds of interviews that he's done. So have you thought about... What you would say to Josh if you could talk to oh, him? Oh, man. I've had people ask me that about Steve because I was actually trying to get a hold of him before he died mm-hmm. last year. But, uh, you know, for Josh, that's an interesting question. Um, Josh had some peculiarities about his personality that, uh, you know, I don't think he really cared what anybody thought about him. Um, Jennifer said something in our interview, uh, Jennifer Graves, Josh's estranged older sister, that, you know, Josh couldn't or wouldn't uh, see Susan for what she was, which was a hardworking, you know, uh, um, talented uh, bright woman who, had he embraced those qualities, qualities about her, uh, they could have done very well together. Josh was smart. He was really smart. He worked uh, when he was devoted to something. Now, a lot of people describe Josh as lazy. Mm-hmm. That was true, unless it was something he cared about. And if so, it was something he, was, he cared about and was fixated on, he would work very hard. Right. And you take those two together and you go, okay, Josh, you know, if, if, if I could talk to Josh and, and ask him something, it's like, Josh, why... Why are you letting your connection to your dad rule your life? Because if you instead embrace your wife for the committed, talented partner that she is. Committed to a fault, a big fault. But, 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 but I mean, you, wow. you, you look at, you take the two strengths, right? Take Susan, Susan's strengths. And you take Josh's strengths and you merge those together and allow them to cancel out each other's weaknesses. Uh, they could have been very successful. And Josh's connection to his dad overrode all of that. And so I think that would be my question, Josh. Josh, what is it about this 
relationship with your dad that precludes you from really embracing this relationship with your wife, which, which is your ticket to, to being a better person, to succeeding in life. Do you think that Steve knew that Josh was going to kill Susan or that he did kill Susan? Yes. Yes. Do you think he knew it beforehand? Yes. A lot of people have said, why would he have been okay with that if he was so obsessed with Susan? I don't think he had. So let me clarify. I don't think he had foreknowledge. Uh, I know he had, didn't have foreknowledge of what Josh did. That being said, uh, there are some journals from Steve that have never been released that, that will be coming up in an upcoming episode that detail exactly what he was thinking the first uh, 24 hours after Susan disappeared. And, and it's quite frankly shocking. Whoa. Yeah. How's he, that for a cliffhanger? <laughs> it's, uh, it's coming up fast, so it's not like you're going to have to wait long. Um, Steve recognized that Josh was capable of murder. And he recognized that as far back as, you know, a year and a half before Susan disappeared. Because Josh at that time was making comments, uh, snide comments, jokes about how much he wanted Susan to have an accident. Or... You know, that he had thought about how nice it would be uh, to be rid of her. What's your feeling about why Steve was okay with that then? Knowing that what may happen. I don't think he thought Josh would actually follow through on it. Uh, and when it did happen, I think he was shocked uh, because he's obsessed with Susan. Mm -hmm. And you see his thinking evolve over time from, oh my gosh, Josh did this horrible thing to... Well, he, maybe not to full-blown, not a chance Susan's living in Brazil uh, because he can't. And, and he, even, he even says this himself, in, in, uh, and I'm going to paraphrase a little bit, but that for his own sanity, he can't allow himself to believe that Susan is dead. Do you think he knew that Josh was going to kill himself and the boys before it happened? Yes. Yeah, I do too. Uh, again, going back to the 24 hours after Susan disappeared, he um, he very clearly expressed a belief that uh, Josh would kill himself and likely the boys before he would uh, ever face the consequences. Do you think that was a plan that they came up with? Like, if you feel like police are closing in, do X, Y, and Z? Because it seems like the house was kind of a, the rental house was kind of a ploy. It wasn't... Yeah, so... Josh, the, the relationship between Josh and Steve is interesting. Uh, Steve is not within Josh's circle of trust because Steve really Steve talks too much. Uh, you know, Steve, a couple of months into this, goes and sits down with the FBI against Josh's advice and blabs for three hours about this, that, and the other. Um, the only person who Josh really seemed to trust was his brother, Michael. Michael. And Steve was a convenient uh, scapegoat. He muddied the water, which was something that was useful to Josh. Uh, after the search warrant raid in August of 2011, when the police went in and they found all of you know Steve's journals and voyeur photos and all of this stuff, Josh was very upset with his dad. Not because of, oh my gosh, you have this thing for Susan, but because dad, you just gave them ammunition to come take the boys away. And that was the one thing that from the very beginning, Josh was most afraid of is that the boys would end up with the Mormons. Um, 
So I don't think that, uh, I don't think that, you know, Steve and Josh together planned the murder-suicide. I think that, that plan was likely Josh's alone. But he definitely premeditated it because you see preparation uh, even going on a, a couple months before in terms of how he was arranging the life mm-hmm. insurance to, to benefit Michael and stuff like that. So what do you think Michael's involvement is in everything? Or do you have any idea? Because I feel like he was deeply troubled mm-hmm. um, and definitely had some 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 demons, some really dark demons after the the murder suicide happened. Yeah. Uh yeah. Um I I'm spending my entire episode 15 talking about Michael because uh when you and I were covering this case, we didn't see a lot of Michael. No, I remember seeing him like vaguely. Yeah. But I don't remember him being, right. you know, anything, really. Right, right. Uh, we didn't hear from him. Um, he was just kind of a non-entity. And then all of a sudden, uh, you know, during our time together at KSL, probably right about the time you were you were leaving or maybe just after, uh, you know, Michael takes his own life. I know. And it comes as a complete, you know, head-turning shock for us. It's like, whoa, where did that come from? What in the heck? And in Minneapolis, everybody in, was yeah. like, he moved to Minneapolis? Yeah. Like, nobody even knew what was going on. So Michael is the the second youngest. Uh, he is actually, he and I were uh, the same age. Um, he was very bright. Mm-hmm. Uh, he served five years in the Army. He did uh, uh, signals and human intelligence work um, when he left he uh, fluently splo- spoke Korean and, and got a degree, a four-year degree. Uh, so anyway, he bounced around. I'll go into a lot of this in the podcast. He, the point of it is, um, unlike Josh, who in a lot of cases struggled, Michael was very independent and, and um, succeeded at most of the things that he, he tried to do. Uh, he broke away geographically from the family in 2010. So a lot of this stuff is going on. He goes, see y'all later. I'm going to try to get a a PhD in Minneapolis and he's gone. But Josh and Michael and Steve uh, stay in touch on the phone, on email, on all this stuff. And it's not until the police get a wiretap on Josh and Steve's phone that they start really seeing that relationship. So it's pretty late in the investigation by this point. Uh, after Josh kills himself and the boys, Michael now is pretty much their sole option at, at learning what you know Josh might have shared with him. And the investigation really starts to focus in, uh, in on Michael. And um, I don't want to scoop myself, uh, but there no, do it, do it. There, it's okay. <laughs> uh, there are some very interesting things that uh, that Josh and Michael were doing uh, that we've learned about that have not been previously reported that indicate the two of them uh, communicated very closely about Susan. How many more episodes are there? Or is that free-flowing? It, I've been pretty vague about it. It's, we're most likely going to clock in um, 17, 18. You know, 18 is probably going to end up being more of a, a kind of a coda, you know, looking back and sharing my my recollections. Um those episodes are coming up really fast and I've actually not written them, written them yet. So, uh, 
So you'll be working seven day weekend, yeah. seven day weekdays for a while. For a little bit longer, but no, I mean it's uh, we don't want to drag it on unnecessarily, right? I mean you could spend a long time doing the blow by blow of everything that happened in court and blah blah. blah. It's like mm, we need to reach a point of the story where it makes sense to to kind of close the narrative that we've started and then uh, and then take a breath. See if there's anything that we didn't cover that we need to come back and and maybe go over uh, again in bonus episodes or whatever. But yeah, probably somewhere between 17 and 18. What's next for you after cold? I have no idea. I have no idea. Uh, a lot of people are asking, you know, are we going to do another case? Another in-depth. Mm-hmm. Um, I would like to. I definitely have uh, stories that I'm passionate about, stuff that I've, I've covered um, that I would like to do a similar treatment on. Uh, I'm also just exhausted and, and the thought of diving right back into something immediately is, is not something I'm keen Go on. Go sit on the beach yeah. after this yeah. and, uh, you know, look at rainbows and <laughs> don't think about anything dark. Cuddle puppies and yep, kittens. Exactly. And, yeah, and, yeah. Yep, exactly. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it's, um, I, I don't want to sound ungrateful because, uh, I'm very humbled by the response to this podcast and to know that people are listening to, you know, we're, I mean, we do public work, right? I mean, doing this podcast, you're putting yourself out there mm-hmm. and you're talking about things you're passionate about and uh, finding an audience who connects with you is very gratifying. And I don't take for granted the fact that people have uh, invited me into their space you know, if they're listening on headphones, I'm literally in their heads for hours and hours at a time. And that's, uh, that's a big show of faith. So uh, I, I appreciate that. And I, will, I want to be able to do that again. Um, I just don't know how or when that's going to happen. So what can people expect in the next episode that are going to be listening? Michael is uh, Michael is the thing. So we are going to rewind the clock, go back to Susan's disappearance, and then walk you through what Michael was doing from then up until the point that he lost his life. Uh, you will see, I think, some pretty surprising things about how he was um, communicating, how he was uh, sharing information, how he was coaching his brother about uh, some of the things that were going on, and ultimately. Uh, hopefully we can at least give people an idea of, of what might have led him to the point where he uh, thought that his best option was was taking his own life. Is this the most viral news-based podcast ever in iTunes history? I, I don't know. I, don't, I think it, I, I really think it might be. I don't know how you'd even measure that, but, but I will say that, um, you know, I think the, the response to it has blown me away. Um, you know, for the work that you've done on Instagram, sharing your your story, I'm sure it's it's got to stun you a little bit, right? It, yeah, it did stun me, and I I, God, I had a really I I was very conflicted. Let's mm. just say I don't talk about my news career very much on mm-hmm. Instagram. I almost never talk about it, and that's not because I'm I'm not really proud of the journalist that I was. I am very proud of the journalist that I was. I have a hard time, you know, I'm an all or nothing kind of person, and I have a hard time remedying you know, some of the, the darker things that I've seen and covered and, and harder topics with sort of where my career path has taken me now, even though they're both very based in storytelling um, and getting to know people and interviewing people. I mean, it's it's really not that different. Um, I still have, have had a lot of hesitance to 
share experiences about journalism publicly. And that's oftentimes because I don't want to take away from the other people who covered this story or the other, you know, there's, there were so many people that covered this story, right? I just happened to cover it the most. And, and some of that was just how I happened to be the first reporter, you know, I was just there and, and I got sent and then I started making contacts and, and then it just kind of snowballed and I was nightside, which was the big show. And so, you know, that, that's just kind of how it happened. But there are so many people who felt invested in this story, not just from KSL, but from other stations as well. Um, and so it's, it's, yeah, it has taken me aback a lot that people are so interested in it, but it's also made me realize, you know, I probably should, I probably should share more about journalism in general. I just haven't done it in the past. I mean, I think it's, it's part of the struggle with the work that we do. Um, I don't perceive you as being somebody who runs out there to go, look at me, look at me. Aren't I so great? I actually am super bad at self-promotion. And, 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 uh, you know, I feel the same way. I, I actually, even though, so I have talked more about myself, uh, talking about cold than I ever have in my entire life. And it makes me really uncomfortable. Mm -hmm. Um, because I, you know, that's, that's just not the, that's not why I do it. And I don't think it's why you did it either. No, And I think, you know, a lot of people have said to me like, but you were on TV for so long and you had this public job. How can you not? How are you not comfortable talking about yourself and promoting yourself? I think good journalists, it's drilled into you. The story's not about you. It's about the people involved. And, And I could craft a story and put together a story and share someone else's story really, really well. But to do that about myself has, has been a challenge. I'm sure you feel the same. Yeah, very much so. But from somebody who I feel like I have really high journalistic standards and I can look at your work from a, you know, not, I have some removal from mm-hmm. it. I think you just deserve all the awards, <laughs> all the journalism awards. I'm serious. This is, this is something really special. I really feel like this is a career maker for you. And I, Wish you the very best, and I hope you go on to do wonderful things. Well, thank you, Jennifer. I I'm very proud of of Cold, and um, again, I'm just very humbled that that people have uh, listened to it, that they share it. Uh, you know, people who review it and say nice things. I mean, that's that's nice, but it you know, uh, it's not why I do it. Uh, you know, letting letting the friends and family get a peek into maybe parts of the story that even they didn't know and answering some of those questions for them uh, is immensely gratifying for me. And again, going back to that idea of uh, this being a story that has power to help uh, people in the future is, is really what motivates me. So awards are nice, you know, downloads are nice. uh, But at the end of the day, the goal of telling a story like this is to hopefully do something good yeah, in the lives of, of, you know, people maybe that I've never even met or never will meet. So that's why I'm, that's why I'm doing it. Well, I'm going to wish you a lot of brain bleach to get <laughs> Stephen Chantry tunes out of your head. Thank, Thank you, you so much for coming on. You bet. Thanks for listening to this special edition of Heart of the Home podcast. Of course, this is outside of our norm, but we cover a lot of really great topics Be sure to check out the rest of our episodes. You can also find us at stag-design.com. That's stag with two Gs. As always, I'm Jennifer Stag. Thank you so much for listening.